Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest name is Cody McLean. Cody is a serial entrepreneur. He's in his late 20s. He's sold multiple businesses. And the reason that today's episode is interesting is because at the age of 15, he started a web hosting company to grow it up to $600,000, partner with another individual who was involved in penny stocks and defrauded Cody and his business. So he lost it all only to go on to start another venture, grow it up, sell it, have an entire period of reflection where he was trying to figure out what does it mean to live a life of happiness? Who does he want to be? And trying to find out his why, only to begin multiple other ventures and then start his current company, Support Ninja, that has over 200 employees and over $4 million in revenue. Cody and I touch on a lot of different subjects about how to systematize your business, how to keep culture and values in a company while growing it to a place that you can actually replace yourself and hire the CEO that can replace you to take the company to the next level so you can focus on the things that you like. Cody shares a lot of his wisdom and experience with us over the interview and how he handled it on the day he sold his company. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Cody. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want, to who you want, for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Cody, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Ryan? Doing good. I'm excited for our conversation because I uh, came across your article that you had written recently and it hit on a lot of the different cylinders of the topics that our audience likes to talk about, about building the value in the business and also trying to figure out how to work yourself out while doing that as well. And you've got a very, very interesting background. So for our listeners, to give them a little bit of a backdrop, you started being an entrepreneur very early on in your life. So if you maybe can bring us into that realm and what did, what made you decide to go into entrepreneurship? Yeah, sure. It's been an interesting journey, actually. Uh, I actually have a book coming out soon. Uh, still just trying to find a publisher, but hoping to inspire lots of underprivileged kids who may have grown up in similar situations that I did. But basically, both my parents died before I turned 18. And there was a time when I was 15 when me and a friend, we wanted to buy an Xbox, but we didn't have the money. He came up with the idea to uh, to to start a business. Uh, our partnership fell apart. But then throughout that whole period from 15 to 17, I started to put more and more of my time into this business, which was a hosting company. And uh, I remember using my mom's social security number uh, and you know opening up a bank account because I was under 18 and I couldn't do it. Uh, basically, I had no idea what I was doing. I just found something that interested me and I, I pursued that uh, to hell and high water. And uh, I was able to partner up with uh, with another guy uh, up in Canada. And so when I turned 18, uh, I was making enough money and I moved up uh, just south of the border next to Vancouver. 
was living there for about a year. But unfortunately, he found uh, this guy who was a penny stock investor, and he was just basically kind of a con artist. And he was able to essentially steal the steal the business from us. And it's a huge long story. It's the, it's in the book, but uh, it was a six hundred thousand dollar business at that point. And then I just basically had to start from scratch. So then I was up in Seattle by myself, uh, and then I decided to move down to to uh, Los Angeles, and I started another company called Pacific Host. Pacific Host was a lot more successful. I did it completely on my own, and I was able to sell that uh, a few years later to a company called Lunar Pages, uh, which they specialize in doing enterprise cloud for uh, enterprise companies. And then after that, uh, well, actually, when I was running Pacific Host, so it was a hosting company, and I essentially opened up the market to what's called FFmpeg hosting. FFmpeg is a Linux codec, so basically every time you upload a video on YouTube, it converts whatever format you upload that video into an FLV format. This is back in the days when they were still using Flash, not HTML5. Uh, but basically, when YouTube got big, everybody wanted to have their own YouTube site. So I saw a market for the shared hosting, and I started offering that on my servers, and I was able to grow a fairly successful brand just through that. And when I had my hosting company, uh, we, we hosted over 30,000 websites uh, wow. at the end, near I sold it. And during that whole time, I was supporting, you know, thousands of customers. And so I had to grow up a team that was supporting my customers. And I started another company based off the, uh, say, I had a lot of guys in India, basically, that were providing me with a bunch of tech support and server administration. So then I figured, why not offer this as, an, as a subservice to other web hosting companies? So I partnered up and founded a company called supportmonk.com. And when I sold Pacific Coast, I also sold my controlling interest in Support Monk. Uh, and so then that was around, they'd say, uh, 22, 23, uh, when all this has happened. And then I kind of gave myself a year of time off. And after I sold that, I was trying to just kind of discover myself a little bit more. I started reading, I started traveling. Uh, learned how to fly an airplane, uh, cool. <laughs> became a photographer, took lots of pictures, uh, and you know, spent some time with myself. And then there was a period where I realized that uh, you know, I want to get back into the game, right? And I saw an opening of this, this niche that combined all my previous years of experience of dealing with customers and providing support, et cetera, and seeing that there was an opening with uh, the tech startups, essentially, uh, because it's called the, the BPO. I didn't even know what that term was uh, a year ago, but it stands for Business Process Outsourcing, which is just a fancy name for a call center. And, you know, back in the, the 90s, you had... Uh, outsourcing started in India and the Philippines, et cetera. And you tend to have uh, two two gamuts on either end. You have these really small mom and pop companies like virtual assistant services that are providing mm-hmm. you know one, two people for, for small businesses. And then you have the opposite end of that is these huge multi-million dollar, some billion dollar companies that are providing outsource support contracts to large enterprise corporations. And there's not really anybody that was providing a huge amount of support to these new emerging innovative tech startups. You know, nobody really understood them. So I just saw an opening and I figured like I can combine my experience in customer support. And so that's when I founded Support Ninja in 2015. And uh, three years down the road now, we have over 200 people in the Philippines that will provide support for some really big name companies. Um, I can't necessarily name them because of privacy concerns, but uh, if I mention them, everybody on this podcast would, would know who they were. And, uh, and yeah, then I started uh, Support Ninja, and uh, we're at a little over $4 million in revenue, uh, growing pretty fast and pretty happy with where we're at and where we're headed. Wow, that's such a cool story, and there's so many different ways I want to kind of peel this apart because you've got so much wisdom from the, the experiences you've had at such a young age. If we can maybe take it in bite-sized chunks, let's go back to 
you know, you got defrauded in your first business at, I mean, very young age, having a $600,000 business. And when you started the next business, Pacific Coast, what were some of the things that you learned off that first time that you immediately knew you were going to do differently? Uh, well, so yeah, I was, I was definitely young. And uh, the thing that before I merged my business with my partner, I realized I was very good with the tech aspect, with the marketing, the strategy. And so the, the, all the aspects that I didn't know or understand about the business, like the registration, the taxes, and just the, just the various administrative aspects, I figured like, okay, my partner can handle that. You know, he's much older than me. Uh, he has more wisdom. I'm just not going to learn or, or care anything about that. And that was one of my biggest mistakes with that is that I gave him too much leeway in the decision making and I didn't kind of check up on his progress. And, you know, he failed in some aspects that kind of contributed as a whole to us being uh, eventually losing the company. Um, but in the, in the new company, I didn't have a partner and I decided to, to just go at it alone. And, and it was very scary because there are a lot of, uh, you know, walls that you look up of like, oh, I don't know how to do this. I can't do that. And yeah. I, I just sort of kind of put that aside for a sec. And I, I spent a lot of time figuring out, OK, how do you register a business? How do I pay my taxes? And there was even a period where I was actually audited by the IRS, I think, back and I was I was uh, 20 or 21, and I didn't have the money to do anything else. But I, I ended up having to defend myself against the IRS um, all on my own, and and I won. And I didn't have to pay them a single dime, and I didn't I didn't have to hire a, a tax attorney for fifteen thousand dollars <laughs> to defend me, you know. Um, and, and because it, because when, apparently when you have a single member LLC, those are the most uh, audited types of companies because that's very easy for uh, you know key fraud and and or frauding and all that fun stuff. But uh, when I when I started Pacific Coast, you know, I had to learn a lot of things on my own. I I ended up having to learn them. So uh, yeah. I mean, I, it sounds like yeah. It, no, I, I'm I'm tracking it because instead of having these walls that you just decide to delegate to, I mean, you just kind of have to take it and learn it in order to be the person that's in control of it. In many ways, yeah, uh, and especially when you don't have a partner to to rely on. Um, yeah. So you know, I think that kind of. If, you know, tracking the story and you, you know, you, the, the title of the article that I had read was how you had scaled your business to the $4 million that you are today in your current company. And, and you've decided to really focus in on this, this work-life balance. Did you master that at the Pacific Coast or, you know, how did you, cause you were obviously taking on a lot of stuff as a single member of that business. You know, how did you build that up to sell it? You know, and what would you have done? I mean, you're obviously on your next venture again, but, you know, did you work too much or how did you end up delegating those those different tasks as you were taking on so much in that, that business? Uh, to, to be honest, I really didn't. Uh, I was doing everything myself. I was doing the marketing, the website design. The only thing that I outsourced was indeed the actual customer support aspect of it. Even when it was a billing matter, those those things would get uh, eventually assigned to me if, if, the, if the lower tier person was, wasn't able to actually handle it. There was a lot of responsibility on my plate, and I was it was almost always stressed. And I had that that level of guilt of when I wasn't working, I should be working. When I was working, I didn't want to be working because I was constantly burned out. And it, and it was a it was not a great experience. And, and in, in many ways, I was I was quite happy to sell it. But after I sold it, I had this sense of this uh, this sort of emptiness because I no longer had employees and you know customers to to handle to to deal with. But it was only after I sold the company when I read that Tim Ferriss's famous four hour work week when I realized I was doing everything wrong. I realized that I was spending way too much time in the in the front uh, doing all these things myself when I could have outsourced not only 
the actual creation or like uh, you know the actual creation of the website, but just more or less sit on the on the outer end and look at the strategy end of it. Uh, I think it's important as on, as an entrepreneur to to realize how the various aspects of your business are running and that you need to fully understand them. But there's a difference between understanding them and actually having to do them yourself um, or, or establishing a process that will allow you to have uh, a part of your company become automated. A- an example is say uh, when when you know that content marketing is an important aspect, you need to write content for your blog. Uh, you know, write a few blog posts to know what kind of content you should be writing or the format. Then you can create a process and then find somebody else who can actually do that for you consistently. Um, or even if you don't have that, you could use a service like Scripted.com to hire them to handle the, the content creation for you on a regular basis. So I didn't really figure that out until after I sold the company. I didn't even have my first assistant until after I sold the company. Wow, so you're uh, doing was, all that yourself and that first yeah. business. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I want I want to actually... I like how you, you articulated that you, when you felt, you felt guilty for working too much, but then and you were burnt out, then you wanted to take a break, but then you felt guilty for being on a break. So then you worked and there's this vicious cycle. Cause I, I've experienced that. And I know a lot of my, our listeners or my customers have experienced that, you know, I'm just curious at what, at what point did you just kind of lift your head up and go, this is too much. Like, was there a specific event that happened or what? Uh, well, I mean, there's certainly always events like when the when the servers crash and you have customers calling and screaming at you, threatening to sue you because their website's down that they pay you uh, 50 bucks for three years for, and they're <laughs> saying that they're losing a thousand dollars a minute. You know, wow. having to deal with that was always a was always a stress point. And so the one thing I always told myself was I would never get back into that business of dealing with super small businesses or freelancers because it's such a headache to to deal with with a small amount of money and and a huge amount of headache. Uh, whereas now with Support Ninja, we we only deal with very high end type contracts or enterprise companies, and they're a lot easier to deal with. Uh, oh uh, my but- gosh, you just brought me back because uh, <laughs> one of our, our old business, uh, one of the divisions was managed IT services for business to business. So a little bit different fashion the service that you were doing. But um, as I was building out the original service offering, um, there was a church and school that we used to do outsourced it for so again maintaining servers when you're just never getting paid enough and they were they were doing a service on sunday and i got a call on saturday which our service hours didn't cover and the whole congregation was not going to be able to do their deal unless i would drove out there and fix some stuff and it's like wait a second this is not sustainable no uh it, it reminds me though of uh, of an essay written by paul graham uh about the maker versus the manager and there was a there was a point when I was running Pacific Coast when you know I was having to manage the company while making it at the same time, and I didn't really split that time. You know, it's it's always like during support tickets, you're handling customer calls, and then at nighttime, I would then be working on the actual business end of it or the marketing or the website. Uh, and I think it's it's important to to schedule those those differences whenever you're managing versus actually making or uh, uh, what uh, I think Paul Newport uh, his book called Deep Work where he talks that about that but it was a it was an important aspect whenever i got to the business um it, it's interesting because you don't really always realize what's next or what you need to have in your business it's only after you have 
certain people or you recruit certain positions, do you actually realize what you're missing all that time? And there was a point where I, I had to hire a operations manager, but I didn't even know that such a job existed. And I didn't know how much work I could be delegating to that person to operate the business on a day-to-day basis and how much time that would free me up. And it's so hard to justify the time initially, you know, if it's a few thousand dollars or whatever, it's hard to know how much money you're saving um, because it's too often as entrepreneurs, we don't actually ask ourselves, you know, if I were a consultant, what would, what would my time be on an hourly basis? And, you know, what is that worth? Um, So it was a big step forward when I actually went out and hired an operations manager. And all of a sudden I didn't have to deal with server crashes with uh, the escalations of the customers mm-hmm. uh, and all of that problems. And I was able to focus more on the higher end tier about what's going to have the biggest impact on the business. So that was a huge realization for me. Did you have like metrics financially where like if I was, because I, I totally agree with you and I've been through the exact same situation where, you know, I'm just curious in that situation, was it, okay, if I hit this kind of cash flow, then I'm going to hire or did you, I think that's the biggest challenge, you know, the, the kind of like the Michael Gerber e-myth, right? Like to get out of that where you're actually the technician doing the work, you know, did you dip into a line of credit? Did you just decide to go like go extend yourself and leverage, leverage yourself on a couple more clients to then hire the person? How did you actually like articulate that decision? Uh, I, w- I wouldn't say that there was any specific metric that I was looking at. It was just a realization of constantly being burned out. Uh, you know, there's this Southern folk saying that I, I like to bring up a lot that you you can't read the, the label while you're inside the jar. And it's way too easy to be stuck inside that jar, just answering, you know, dealing with your day-to-day business operations, but not really taking a step to, to look outside of that. Um, so like one example of something that I do now is is before I start my work week on Monday, I actually plan out what is going to be my my strong area of focus for that week. Where, what am I going to be making a lot of progress on? And it's too easy to not ask yourself what's going wrong and just focus on what's in front of you that you don't really take time to ask yourself, what do you need to insert or modify to make better? What are your biggest problems in the business that are causing you to, to not make as much progress as you would like to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that, uh, uh, in your business, with that you, the, the Pacific Coast that you sold with you doing a lot in the business, you know, where did the offer come from and then how did they value it? And then the third question would be is, did your involvement affect the value? Uh, well, it, so it, it was sold uh, for about a year's worth of the uh, of the revenue. Um, so a, a projected year of revenue is pretty standard in the web hosting industry. I was able to find a a pretty uh, good broker within the the industry who was able to connect me with the buyer um, that ended up being Lunar Pages, and uh, they uh, it was a pretty seamless buy. Um, although the the company was being sold for about a year, uh, it was up up for bid, and I went through multiple buyer conversations, and it was it was depressing in the same respect because I almost didn't want to sell it because it was my baby, and so I was having all these these feelings about do I want to sell it, do I not want to sell it, uh, and it was able to just successfully sell it. Um, so yeah, it was it was, a, it was a year's worth of revenue from the from the projected date. What was, uh, what was some of the reasons that you were going through in your head in that negotiation with internal dialogue? What were some of the reasons you wanted to sell it? And what were some of the reasons you didn't want to? Well, I think because it's an emotional attachment was the biggest reason I didn't want to sell it, right? Because if you put all your hard-earned effort and, and time into it, it, it's really hard to justify a cost to get out of that. You know, even if it's a if it's a really if, if it's a lot of money, it's still you're still questioned. You know, like can you make this bigger? Can you make it better? And I think my reasons were uh, the consistent of just kind of, kind of having a feeling of burnt of being burnt out consistently, not really having that intrinsic motivation to want to like push this company and push the company further. Uh, and I just felt stuck. 
I didn't really know where to take it to next. Um, one of the one of the biggest things with when you build a company is that you can't just necessarily make a pivot once you have a large customer audience or a specific market that you've tackled. And in some respects, I wanted to pivot. I wanted to go after higher end customers after I realized what what a pain the, the some of the customers I had were to deal with. And I realized I couldn't do that. So there was sort of a feeling of being stuck in the company um, of just uh, where it kind of became it, it converted from being a startup into a company where there was no real innovation that needed to occur. You just needed to to optimize the existing systems to make them slightly more efficient. And that just didn't interest me as much. So it was, it was a consistent, a little bit of everything. What was your feeling like when you, the day you sold it? Uh, it, it was, uh, well, that's, that's interesting. I remember being at the at the comp- at their company headquarters in, in Orange County, and the uh, and I was sitting at the board table, and uh, you know the the CEO had the lawyer on the phone, and then he he wired the money, uh, and then they asked me to like log in, so I, I went to go check my bank account balance, and there were a few extra zeros in there, <laughs> and then the the CEO asked me how do I feel, and I was like yeah it, it, pretty good, but uh, you know we've got a lot of work here to do, so let's, uh, let's kind of get to it. And I remember back at that moment is I didn't really take the time to appreciate that win that I just had. Uh, and I know like Tim Ferriss has the, what he calls a jar of awesome or, uh, you know, have a, having a gratitude journal. So I realized back at that moment that there's a lot of small wins as an entrepreneur and we don't really take the time to appreciate those. Um, so that was one of the lessons that I learned from that after I sold it. And, you know, there, there wasn't just like a feeling of excitement. Um, it was just like, oh, wow, I have a lot of money. Let me go buy a, a whole bunch of new things, which which lasted for a short period of time. But then I uh, got back into it and tried to to realize, you know, it's not just about the money. It's like it's what's next. What, mm-hmm. what kind of impact do I want to have? What kind of meaning do I want to bring to my life? So I love what you just said. And that couple sentences doesn't probably explain the journey emotionally that you went through to actually come to that realization you know, can we peel back and then say, because I, I, I very much can relate to what you said. Our, our sale day was slightly different um, and, and my emotional journey was slightly different, but it, it is. So, you know, what is it that you decided to do now? Like, what are the what are the cool things you decided to buy to, to fill this gap? And, you know, I, I saw in some of your articles, some of the things in the, the, the soul searching you did. So kind of walk us through that journey of how did you actually get to the, that point to realize it's not about the money? Um. Well, I mean, I mean, after I sold the company, there was definitely a period of time where I just didn't really know what to do with myself. Uh, you know, sure, I played video games, um, just tried to even work on figuring out what my next business idea was because I was so um, excited to just get right back into it. Um, but then I was even kind of demotivated uh, a little bit because I didn't, uh, I feel like I was kind of starting back at ground zero if I wanted to start something else up. There was a long period of time where I was going to just start another hosting company, um, but I ended up scrapping that idea. So there was a lot of there was a lot of back and forth, and just uh, unsure what to do with myself. Uh, what I would say that caused the biggest impact is just I started to read a lot of articles. A lot of those articles started to lead to reading a lot of books, and then uh, reading books about habits. And then I realized, like, wow, for the past ten years of my life, I've been waking up. I I, I eat a bowl of sugary cereal. I watch an hour of TV, and I work for the rest of the day. And then I feel bad at the end of the day because I don't feel like I got anything done, and yet I worked the entire day. So there's there's uh, I was procrastinating constantly. I was having um, just it was, it was 
it was not great in terms of my health, in terms of, uh, of, of the knowledge building and all that. So I was able to establish new habits. Um, and so today I, I wake up, I'll go to the gym, or I run, I meditate and I read. So I like to call it my mind, my body, my soul. And those sort of uh, exist as like a keystone pillar for me, you know, as sort of a hard foundation. Um, it's just like, you know, when, whenever you make your bed, it's, um, it's the idea that, you know, even if you feel like you didn't get anything done, at least you, you know, you made your bed, you, you have that routine. Um, so, you know, there's, there's days that as they pass by, it just sort of kind of becomes the the same old, you know, it's like it, every day that passes, it just uh, almost seems the same as the last, but at mm-hmm. least I can say that I'm, I'm adding to my knowledge. Uh, I'm, I'm maintaining kind of a, a stress-free uh, or, or mind. Uh, I'm trying to remain clear and focused on my work. But it was just a lot of uh, of trial and error, I suppose. I uh, when I was running the company, I didn't really know. Uh, well, I mean, I, I had interests, you know, like I was playing Microsoft Flight Simulator, but I I never thought I'd be able to fly an airplane. Uh, and there was just uh, some time where I just said, you know, screw it, I'm going to go ahead and and try it out. Um, and then committed myself to flight lessons. I uh, committed myself to reading just 30 minutes a day for, for like two weeks, and then that turned into a lifelong habit. So it's it's just sort of starting the starting with small changes, you know, uh, small acts. And without having this huge uh, company to run, I was finally able to devote time to, to myself, to looking at what my passions were. And I really neglected that for a very long period of time. Uh, so I was happy to kind of have that period of myself. I was able to just start, uh, I don't know, self-discovery. Did you find it difficult to do that when you don't have to do that? I've seen other people kind of struggle with that. Well, you don't have to do anything, I suppose. Uh, but it's it's just like when you have like you know people like Elon Musk uh, or Jeff Bezos, you know they don't have to do anything, but yet mm-hmm. they continue to do something. Uh, it's it's like you know it, it's it's all about I guess finding meaning and you know answering that that why question. Why do you do what you do? Uh, and that's the the real reason for having that intrinsic motivation for for having your drive in life. Uh, it, it's uh, you know if you've read uh, Viktor Frankl's book. Uh, uh, about Man search for meaning. I'll yes, exactly. You know, uh, it's like he's in a concentration camp and yet he was able to find meaning. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you win the lottery tomorrow, I don't think that's necessarily, it's obviously doesn't, doesn't make you happy, but I, I discovered that, uh, I've had this, uh, I have an interest in learning many new talents, uh, with wanting to, to help others as much as I can, uh, with wanting to build a business that can support other people's ideas. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can help change the world to some minute, small degree by helping other companies, uh, or people achieve their dreams. Uh, so your why seems tied to that. Is there, because, you know, through, as you've kind of recalibrated, um, over this period of time and, and, uh, what was the actual time frame between when you had sold and then when you started, um, support Ninja? Um, maybe, I don't know if I'm married somewhere between three and, um, and two years, I'd say I made a lot of progress in starting other companies. Um, so I was able to, to start other side ventures that made a, a little bit of money for me. Um, but certainly support and just been, uh, been my main focus. So the why you, I would go back to your why and finding meaning. Um, so yeah, you obviously were dabbling in some other things and the support ninjas, obviously, you know, it's a big, uh, successful company at this point, you know, where, how did you tie your why into when you started that, you know, and when, what is your why? Uh, well, it, it's, it's hard to just answer specifically. Uh, there's, there's a lot of whys I guess I have, uh, you know, there's, there's wanting to ha- have a constant drive of learning new things, of, of not necessarily achieving uh, complete mastery, but achieving enough where I can say that I can do it. 
And there's always this, uh, I guess I, I have like the lottery brain of, brain of sorts where I'm always interested in, in the newest thing and trying uh, new ideas. Yeah, uh, that's my point. But uh, no, I think, you know, I, it, I'm on the same page with you because I, you know, I, I saw on one of your articles that you like the book Meditations. And like mm-hmm. I, you've already mentioned Tim Ferriss and I, there's this whole thirst for knowledge where, um, I have interviewed some other, uh, entrepreneurs where they're using, it, um, there was a, a gentleman, uh, Lloyd who had said, you know, using your business as a platform to do the things that you want to do, you know, cause now you've got, you had mentioned you'd lost your customers, but now you've got customers, you've got centers of influence, you got people where you're able to use that and enable that thirst for knowledge, which is, which is really, really cool. Yeah, and then at the same time, we're able to support their company's growth. And so I'd like to think that Support Ninja helps scale uh, all these other innovative companies. So, you know, they they have the innovative uh, innovative idea, they're growing it, uh, but we're here supporting that that growth um, because we're, we're lowering their operating costs. We're, we're strategizing a, a support plan with them in terms of how we'll, we'll handle the training uh, and the management of that so that we're meeting their metrics. It's, it's a lot of fun stuff in the back end, uh, but every new client is kind of like a new consulting gig in a way. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are some of the things that, you know, when you, just, when you started Support Ninja and you've had some ridiculously successful growth, what are the, the, the key strategies and habits that you're implementing to make sure that you don't fall into the traps that you had in the past? Well, well, certainly the, the, it, it's, it's hard to try and run a, a company where um, it's mostly managed in a, in a foreign, foreign country. You know, we had, I had to go to the Philippines and figure out how to register a foreign corporation there. Um, it's not a fun process. I don't think I would do it again. Uh, but, uh, but to, to run it is an, is another interesting story because it's, it's having to combine people and technology and processes with that. One of the, the, the bigger issues I had initially was how to manage such a, such a large, uh, team of people. And so it was, it was interesting to try and grow it out from having a, uh, from an operations manager to a site director, to a regional director, um, and trying to create these various branches of management as the company was growing, and that was that was a huge pain. Uh, one of the one of the ways I was able to help solve that, as I talk about my blog post, is by using uh, software that's that essentially allows me to create those processes. Uh, because what I find in a lot of companies is that they'll, uh, you know, if you're the entrepreneur, you know your business inside and out, so you'll actually go and actually do that part of the process. But then you hire somebody else, or uh, you don't take the time to really fully understand an aspect of your business, and you delegate that that to somebody else. Um, but then they retain that knowledge and then they're essentially tied to your business and that's part of the problem that i didn't want to have and so i i went through the through the process of creating all these various processes and then instructed others within the company to to use those processes and to mold those processes as they see fit and as the company changes and that allows us to keep the keep the knowledge within the company it allows us to to grow upon those processes instead of having to start new or just having um, independent parts of the whole where you have some employees who have who know certain aspects of the business but you know the other people don't know how to do their job if that person were sick etc uh so i i tried to, ch- to change that a little bit um and in terms of how we grow the company we invest a lot of time back into the actual employee development um you know we we have tons of tons of free things that we offer employees and we try to create a really meaningful culture of of, of love and uh family and it's it's interesting the, the the kind of culture that we try to to, to create in the Philippines. Um, so how do you do that? I'm just totally curious because you're based in the U.S., right? And 
being able like how do you how do you spread your charisma and enthusiasm and all that to people that are across the world and yeah just how, how does that whole thing work uh, well, I, I do something every month, at least where I, I send out what I call a ninja mail. And I, it typically is like a short story that combines with uh, like a, a moral lesson. So I try to look at what's happening in the business and, and what do I need? To, what do we need to share and talk about this month? Um, I also have to travel to, to the Philippines quite a bit. Uh, and then, you know, meeting everybody in person, um, working with them directly uh, in the clients. We also encourage our clients to send their own swag to their team. Um, cool. So we have a lot of our client logos and t-shirts and stickers and everything in the office so that our our teams actually feel like they're working for that company and not just for us uh, so we have like a, a microculture of our, our own clients cultures embedded within our own culture in the Philippines but then yeah we, we have to travel quite a bit uh, we'll do video uh, recordings where we where we uh, record ourselves we send that over to our team uh, we have a huge slack channel where all of our employees in the lobby um, we also uh, have helped the development of a, of a slack uh, application called hey taco uh, which is a fun little application where you can actually send tacos to other employees and so we we have uh, points where um, if you get enough tacos and you can redeem that for a prize, like a gift card or, or some kind of swag. Um, so, so we try to use technology as much as possible as well to encourage kind of a fun uh, culture awesome. in the office. Uh, so to go back to, you know, the standard operating procedures, the SOPs or the processes that you had mentioned, you know, I think the tribal knowledge is always something, whether it is yourself or anybody else that people struggle with. How do you combine the technology and the processes to the people? I mean, is there like, and what are the, the, the most successful processes that you've, you've seen implemented where it's a repeatable situation that wasn't before? Uh, our biggest issue is since uh, we, every new client that we take aboard is essentially a new project where we have to figure out what are their needs, what are, what do they, how can we service them, what kind of metrics do they need on a, on a recurring basis, what kind of uh, QA do we need. So every new client is just like a new thing uh, and it's not like a consistent sign up with our SaaS product and, you know, an automated email gets sent like previously, which was my hosting company. Um, so the, the, the need that I saw to solve was the onboarding process. Mm -hmm. uh, now we use a software called Pipeify, which is sort of like a Trello board, but it allows you to specify certain fields and operate and automated operations to occur, like sending an email to a client or sending an email to a department or assigning a card to a to a person. Uh, and so we automated our onboarding process. So after our salesperson say signs the like uh, the, the contract, the sales contract gets executed, then we actually add them, the salesperson adds them to that process. And then that'll go further, it'll go set It'll go to our finance department, which puts the billing information together, which sends out the invoice. It'll notify the training department, which then contacts the client and then sets up a meeting to figure out how are we going to figure out the training processes. And so uh, we're able to get all the various departments within the company, which uh, we have a fairly big company. And I've never had a company this big. And so it's been it's very difficult to deal with so many people who have their own way of doing things. And uh, I also combine that with specific instructions. So we have an internal LMS or a learning management system. So we have all of our employees go through that system and we have various courses that they have to take. And including one of them is, is we try and standardize communication. So that includes Slack and email. Uh, I have another blog post where I talk about our workflow within the company where we actually have Gmail set up in a specific way. We have, uh, we standardize the way that communication occurs throughout the company because it's so easy if you have a large company that you have 
have different departments uh, use applications in different ways or they collaborate differently. And so that's one of the things that we try to standardize is not only that communication, um, but the but the processes that are reoccurring and that require multiple departments. And that's the uh, you know the first thing was that client onboarding process. And so then as the uh, as that client card gets passed through the various processes, it will even send automatic emails to the client based on the variables and the fields that those people have entered in um, in that very specific phase of the process. Uh, so we're able to take this thing that would previously take lots of emails back and forth and lots of just random direct messages and Slack about uh, an update on this client or what you need for that client. And we're able to combine that wholly into this process. And it, it solves that communication gap so nothing can, can fall through the cracks. And the beautiful thing about it is that uh, I know previously at my at Pacific Coast, I, I had a wiki. And so we try to store as much information about the company inside that wiki. But the problem is that it's very difficult to get your employees to use that wiki because it's not uh, it's not functionally a part of their job. You know, they don't necessarily need to look at it all the time. They look at it, they figure it out, and then they, they commit it to memory. But then they'll often have uh, memory errors where they don't do it properly or they, uh, you know, things fall through the cracks. And that's essentially what happens is, is they never end up referring to the wiki and it never gets updated. So then it becomes relevant and then nobody looks at it because it's irrelevant. And with uh, with the SOP type software is that it's constantly relevant because you require that the process is actually a part of it. Uh, you have to follow the instructions in, in order to perform the perform the process. And that allows me or anybody to actually go in there, make a, make a modification to that process overnight. And we don't have to send a mass email to the company or their departments um, because that's simply going to be there the next time that they go through that process. So you're able to update it on the fly. And I found this sort of data extraction to be a huge, huge change. Um, it, it goes back to the uh, to the process. Um, I'm, I'm blanking it right now, but like the Toyota production method. Uh, do you do you remember what the what the term um, is? Yes, uh, lean manufacturing. Uh, well, well, lean manufacturing or is one of it. Six Sigma uh, or whatever. It, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't remember yeah. the exact uh, Toyota. Yeah, it, it, but uh, I remember I, I did I did a talk uh, like a year ago at a, at a company that that basically specialized in, in talking about that. Uh, and it was and they had a huge issue where they had a lot of employees who had knowledge about their specific part of the job, but they they weren't willing to share that with the rest of the company. You know, they, they weren't willing to write it down or they weren't willing to change their ways. And that that's a huge issue I see a lot of the time in, in small companies where um, you can end up getting blackmailed by your employee because if your employee knows that you can't run the company without him, then he has a huge amount of leverage over you. But if you start your company with the intention that everything from whenever you hire an employee or even a contractor, that that contractor is doing something that you've already outlined and mm -hmm. then they're supposed to help fill that in. Then you're able to not just pay for that contractor's time, but then you're able to log that knowledge or anything that they can add to your company so that you can take it to somebody else. It also adds a lot of uh, dexterity to your company where if you have somebody that's out uh, or they're sick and you know maybe you as the entrepreneur have to fill that position, um, you might be lost if you haven't been following that person for a while. And, and if you convert them into a process that where their job is a part of a process that's a written down process, then it's very much, it's a lot easier to take that over. Well, and the beauty of all this is you're actually creating extremely valuable business. <laughs> Because it's super transferable. Yeah, that that's that's the other biggest issue with when you sell, right? Is that the the buyer there's there's such a long period of time where often the the founder will have to be involved in the company so that the new buyer knows how to run it. Um, but if you log all, all every how you do everything from the beginning, then that makes it a, a lot easier. How do you balance the culture 
and this because with a with the, you know a few hundred employees like you've got how do you make it not seem like big brother or we're dictating this and maintaining that fun slack-based culture with cool communication and swag i mean it, it how have you incorporated those two uh well i just try not to be very uh very strict with everything you know if if uh if we have a problem i try and look at it from a perspective of how would i feel in that situation and and a, and a recent example i would give is say uh facebook and youtube um so you know we i if i if i were in my employee's position you know having to work this job i would i would be great to be able to go to facebook or youtube you know just to have a small mini break and so what most companies end up doing is that they just, they just block the websites outright mm-hmm. and they, they and you can't have your mobile phones on the floor because there's there's privacy concerns for the client. But uh, I knew that if, if I were that, I would love to have something like that. But the problem is that we end up having the the agencies that they could spend their entire time on on the on Facebook. Maybe they're not working the entire time. Uh, so instead, I devised a solution where we actually use a Chrome extension where it actually divides up the time per agent on a daily basis. So we'll give each agent 25 minutes a day where they can essentially divide that time up however much they want to have sort of what I would call like mini breaks. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of studies that show that human human attention is very limited. And so if we can allow uh, an agent in between, say, when they don't have a lot of tickets, that so they can just quickly open up Facebook and, you know, be on Facebook for, for, uh, for a few minutes, then get back to work. You know, that helps to refresh their brain and you know, they, they feel a little bit like they got like a bit of a mini break. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of a, an alternate way of looking at it is like, how can we solve this problem uh, without without limiting them, you know, outright um, to making the job a little bit better, a little bit more fun, a little bit easier to, to work with? Because if I knew that I was having to go and I, uh, into a job and I couldn't access uh, Facebook or a social media, you know, something during my job, um, especially if it's a rough day, uh, and, and that's just what we try and do is, is look at it from that perspective. And then I look at other companies of, um, you know, so in the Philippines, it's, it's very corporate, very, it's very like nineties, two thousands corporate of how most companies are run. Mm-hmm. And I try to look at it from a perspective of what do our clients want and, and our clients want like the Google office. And so we try and bring that culture, that environment of uh, providing as much freedom as possible. Uh, and trying to do it in a cool, fun way, because definitely I would want to work there if I was in the Philippines. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a great answer. I think having a balance between those two things is completely possible, you know. And and being real with the world that we live in, it's you, you can't have a, like a complete black and white picture like that. And so, you know, the cool little hacks that you talk about how you're actually managing, I think, is extremely effective. When you are looking towards the future, now that you've you've gone through a couple of your own exits. You know, where do you see the end or your why with the support ninja? I mean, is there a specific revenue target that you're trying to go towards? Is it like a specific industry disruption? You know, how is your why changed with the, the company vision? Uh, well, well, I see support and injury initially as just a foundation, um, a foundation to being able to launch other ventures and to do uh, a lot more. And in regards to industry d- disruption, um, you know, we are working on on something where uh, we essentially want to lower the barrier to entry for customer support because right now we have to turn a lot of customers away because our minimum client size is you know you're going to end up paying us a, a couple thousand dollars a month because the amount of resources and time that we have to go into a new project from from having to set up the meetings from having to create your the, the training material to having to manage the team 
it, it's, a, it's a lot of time and resources. So uh, it, it requires a lot. And I want to lower that commitment so that we can get, uh, we can make it more efficient. We can lower the cost. We can get a lot of the smaller companies who are indeed smaller, but don't, you know, obviously have the, have the money um, to be able to make use of effective customer support services that will help scale their business and help do most of the support without their intervention from a very young, young start. Um, so that's what we're working on internally. Um, and, and it's, it, I definitely feel like that's something that I always need. You know, I, I've, I have ADHD and it's very easy for me to lose interest in stuff. And so I'm always trying to find like, what's the newest thing that I'm trying to, to focus on. And so, uh, you know, initially it was launching the company. It was, it was establishing ourselves in the Philippines. Um, it was trying to get a, a sales, uh, figuring out the, the, the sales funnel, figuring out the marketing end of it, and now working on uh, a SaaS product that we can eventually launch and, uh, and go to market with that. But uh, eventually I see the company going into AI um, because, you know, in 10 years, uh, a lot of the work that we do and, and whatnot is going to be partly automated by artificial intelligence. So uh, there's a there's a huge benefit that we have to already being sort of doing that work that is eventually going to be automated. And that gives us a bit of an advantage. So definitely always looking towards the future. Yeah, and that topic right there is going to give you plenty of uh, plenty of bandwidth and runway to constantly be learning because I think it's going to be all of us versus just constant innovation. And you know, for people like yourself that like to learn and grow, we got to constantly be keeping on edge to stay competitive in our industry. So it's uh, it's a it's a pretty cool situation. So on a day to day basis, you know, the making versus the uh, managing. I'm assuming you like to spend most of your time in the making. Uh, yes, very sure. I, I've. Uh... Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to have a company now where I was able to step down as CEO, and yet I'm still a majority owner of my company. But I have somebody else running the company. Um, I've never been somebody who likes to to manage. I like to make, and always looking towards the towards the future of what can we, how, how can I steer this this ship into a direction that's going to be good for for us. It's going to be good for the world uh, and all of our clients. That's awesome. One quick question uh, before we kind of start to wrap up is, you know, that individual that you found to replace you, where did you find this individual? And then how did you work on that uh, transition? Oh, that would be Connor. Uh, you, you, I really can't pinpoint it. It, it was, it was something where I was looking for just a, a regular employee and um, he just struck me as the right person. Um, it's, it's one of those times where, especially now, uh, I, I never don't listen to my gut my gut feeling now. And that's something that um, I didn't do, especially when I lost that company um, that, that got stolen for me is, is I had a gut feeling that something wasn't right, but I didn't stick with it. And uh, a lot of the times now I'm able to to recognize when I have a gut feeling about a person or a situation. And and I, I kind of measure the odds. And, it, you know, I didn't initially hire him as CEO. It was just uh, to help manage the, the client services. But but clearly after a lot of conversation and talking, it was it it was something that we both felt was right. And in fact, he asked for it, but I had already started to think that, oh, he would be a good CEO. And so it was just interesting that that we were able to kind of come to terms with it. But I can't say there's any magic key. Uh, there's a lot of people that we've been through and hired um, and fired, and they just weren't right for the company. But yeah, there's no magic bullet, fortunately, when it comes to that. That's awesome. And, and you got to trust your gut, and especially if you're going to be kind of married to this individual taking over your baby. Is there anything unique that you did on a compensation structure or equity or um, somehow tying him to the, the future growth of the business? Uh, you know, the interesting thing with, with Connor is that he was never uh, he, he was never much about the the equity um, or, or the or the money up front. He, he really was somebody who had uh, 
who is generally just a good person. And uh, it's it's hard. It's very rare to find those kinds of people. Uh, but uh, it, it's it wasn't a huge issue for him. Um, but I I'm a very fair person, so I I. I had to give him more than what he was even asking for just because I felt it was the right thing to do. That's yeah. a way better position to be in than having someone just demand it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's a big difference. Uh, and, and it shows just kind of where, where your, your values are, where your morals are. And it was, it was sort of just seeing what decisions that he made um, as, as running the, the client services team um, that, that led to me thinking that, you know, he would be the right person for a job and, and he is a bit young, um, but he has, he has the, the right heart. And that's really what I look for. Isn't it so awesome when I, uh, what the, my, the individual at my old business that we hired to bring in, that was just a total game changer for me. I kind of did the same thing where I went and I wanted to give him a raise. And he just looked at me and we're sitting over beers and he's just like, Hey, can I just give an extra week of vacation? And I'm like, yeah, like, <laughs> can I give you more money too? <laughs> he's like, <"Sure." laughs> and, like, and it just makes you feel so much better because it just kind of validates the fact that you've got a really cool, really good person sitting across from you. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I definitely take time to appreciate that as much as I can. Uh, it's, it's not too often, uh, where, where you're in a position where I can say like, uh, I, I'm almost like living the dream in, in some respect and yet I'm still not happy. It's like, I'm still trying to, I, I have this huge ambition of all these things I want to do. And yet I've never been in a better position in my entire life. I mean, I've, I, I have my own company and I have other people running it for me. I mean, what, what better could you ask for? Um, but it still comes back down to that meaning that why, you know, and wanting mm -hmm. to accomplish something, wanting to change something. So that, that drive is, is still there. Uh, but yet I take time to appreciate what I have. I love it. As we kind of wrap up, what is the best way, Cody, for our listeners to get in touch with you? Uh, just just visit my website, CodyMcLean.com, uh, sign up for my, my newsletter. I send out, uh, it is very rare that I send out a, a newsletter or a blog post, but whenever I do, I try and make it very, very good. Uh, so I, I, I promise you, you won't be uh, disappointed. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs>